Well, do take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 5 this evening. I read uh, recently about a psychological experiment carried on uh, with some children. Apparently, the psychiatrist called together ten children. He took nine of them aside, unknown to the tenth, and let them in on the secret, and uh, then brought the ten of them together to work the experiment. So. It was a very simple experiment. There were a bunch of straws. There was one long straw and a short one. And he said to the kids, what I want you to do is to put your hands up uh, when I hold up the longest straw. So the kids sat down. They were all excited and took their place. Nine of them knew what they were to do. The tenth didn't. The teacher held up the longest straw. And immediately, the little guy put his hand up. But all the others kept their hands firmly down. He looked around quizzically, of course, and gradually, gradually, he brought his hand down to accommodate to what the others were doing. What he saw was the longest straw, but what he saw around him were people who didn't recognize it as the longest straw. It was an experiment, of course, about peer pressure, how easily we give in to the pressure of those around us. As we meet tonight, we we live in a society in which it is increasingly difficult for us to stand out as Christians. And the more people speak against Christianity, the more we begin to lose our confidence in what we believe, what we think about when it comes to the Christian faith. We think that's hard, but it was infinitely harder for the early Christians about which we're reading. I mean, Christianity was the new kid on the block. Uh, There just hadn't been anything like this before. Didn't have a history. It had no influence. It had no access to the levers of power. And uh, it was a fragile and uncertain movement. And in this chapter, we find the apostles of Jesus in a very difficult situation. We find escalating resistance to Christianity in its earliest days. I think one of the things I want to say as we come to the story is to remind us that what we are reading are historical facts. Uh, These are facts that we need to know to understand why it is that in the world today, Christianity is an existent force. Here in America, it's had an influence in the national life of this country, perhaps beyond anything in the Western world. Today in our world, in China, Christianity is advancing at an amazing rate of knots. In other parts of the world, it's growing like wildfire. And in other parts of the world, Christianity is past tense. Europe is a case in point. So there's a phenomenon that you and I need to understand, isn't there? Even if you're not a Christian yourself, this phenomenon of Christianity, how do I understand it? What the book of Acts purports to be is a history book that explains why it is that Christianity exists because, as we read in this chapter, there was a moment in which Christianity nearly didn't exist. Peter and John, two of the apostles, have been in and out of jail already. We've discovered in chapter 4. And now in chapter 5, we discover the entire group of the apostles arrested and put in jail. Now, why that's significant is explained in that introductory 
kind of crossover section that we read from verse 12 to verse 16. In that summary section, what we're told is that the apostles were absolutely key to the survival of the church. They had enormous power, we're told, to work signs and wonders that immediately associated them as belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. These supernatural deeds of the apostles and the strange deaths of these two people, Ananias and Sapphira, these were judicial deaths. They were supernatural. Everybody was hearing about them. People were overawed by them. And people were feeling the church's impact on the wider public. In other words, everything that was going on was happening in public. It was happening before the eyes of the general population as a whole, not in kind of mystical experiences held behind closed doors, but very visible, very public, very historical, very observable by the eyes of everyone. And it's in that context that this intensification of resistance to the men and the message takes place. And where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Sanhedrin. It comes from the Jewish ruling council. It comes particularly from the Sadducean party. If you look at verse 17, these are the party within the Jewish council who don't believe in the supernatural. They are the rationalists of their day. They don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in the resurrection of the body, and they don't believe in angels or in supernatural visitations. So they're going to be really ticked off, aren't they, with the early Christians who are talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, they're going to be seriously ticked off by what's going to happen in this story tonight. We're told that they were filled with jealousy. In other words, not only were they concerned for the political implications of Christianity, not only were they concerned for their own philosophical, theological ideas that were being challenged by Christianity, but at a very human, basic level, they felt that they were being sidelined by these untrained men, the apostles of Jesus. So there was escalating resistance. They were captured and they were put in jail. And they, they do so publicly. The, the emphasis is that this was all uh, done publicly. They arrested the apostles, verse 18, and they put them in the public prison. They were making a point. They were doing this before the eyes of everybody, making sure everybody knew they were in control. They had the apostles in public prison. So there was escalating resistance. And then there's what we can only describe as exhilarating deliverance. It's a great story. The very publicity surrounding their arrest and imprisonment plays against the authorities, ultimately. Because we're told that that night an angel of the Lord visited the prison. Now, angels have appeared all over Luke's writing. Uh, they appear to Mary. Not sure what Mary felt about that visit of an angel, but because it just changed her life. I mean, when an angel turns up and tells you you're pregnant uh, and, and there's no other reason for you thinking you might be, that must have been quite a shock. Angels have all kinds of jobs to do, and that was a that was a very interesting job for that angel to do. He was the messenger of God to Mary. And then angels appeared to the shepherds. It won't be very long now before we're saying that over and over again, singing it too. So get your Christmas shopping list ready. Uh, so these angels come and they appear to the shepherds, and then they appear to Jesus, and they comfort him and encourage him. 
And now they're going to appear again, and there's going to be this miraculous rescue for the apostles. I want to add here that this kind of miraculous rescue is not the norm. It's not the norm for the church then. It's not the norm for the church now. A couple of chapters later on, Stephen is not going to be rescued miraculously from prison. He's going to be stoned to death. And when ultimately Paul or Peter or any of these great figures are in jail for the last time, they're not going to be miraculously delivered. This is not the norm, but it happens here in order to prepare these men and to teach us. It tells us ultimately nothing is going to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. They needed to know that back then because it seemed as if everything could destroy them, that there was nothing to protect them, no one to protect them. They were on their own in the world. What happens here then is the direct work of God releasing these prisoners from their cell. Of course, I like to think, how did they do it? I mean, obviously, they opened the door, the prison. How did they get past the guards? Did they have kind of cloaking devices? You don't watch Star Trek or any of these things. You're too spiritual. Uh, But cloaking devices, they're they're a very good technique. I I think probably the angel developed that kind of of technology. It's where we got the idea from. I I bet it was exhilarating for the apostles, or maybe maybe I'm reading this into it. Wouldn't you be excited? I mean, really? There you are in prison. You're feeling really quite miserable. You you don't know what's going to happen next. And then in the middle of the night, you're wakened up by somebody opening the door and signaling, follow me. And you go trotting after this person. And there are the guards sitting, chatting away, and they don't notice you. And out you go, and the front door opens. Out you find yourself standing in the street, free. I mean, would that be exhilarating or not? Or is it just me? It is a tremendous story, isn't it? And you know, interestingly enough, this is one of the things that is going to comfort these men and other Christians. It's going to comfort them for the rest of their lives. Tradition, for example, tells us a lot about these men. That Matthew, for example, was conscious of an angel's presence when he was martyred by the sword. That Mark did when he was being dragged through the streets of Alexandria to his death. Luke had the same experience when he was hanged on an olive tree in in Greece. And John, when he was scarred by a cauldron of boiling oil poured over him, sensed that an angel was by his side. Peter, when he was hung upside down and crucified there on Vatican Hill in Rome. Or John, or, or James or less, when he was thrown in from a high tower and then beaten to death. Or Philip, when he was hanged. Or Bartholomew, when he was beaten to death. Or Andrew, when he was bound to a cross while he preached to the crowds until he perished. Or Matthias, who is stoned and then beheaded. Or Paul, who is beheaded in Rome. All of these people derived comfort, strength from the ministry of angels at the last point in their lives. But nothing like these men this night being rescued from prison by an angel. But they weren't only rescued. They were commissioned by the angel who says to them this, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. They weren't just released so they could go home and tell everybody the story of this miraculous thing. There was a purpose and a plan in it. There was work for them to do. What was the work? Notice what the work was. Where were they to go? Well, they were to go back into the lion's den. 
Where were the Sanhedrin in charge? In the temple. Where were they to preach? In the temple courts. What were they to preach about? Having been cautioned and told that they were no more to speak in the name of Jesus Christ, what were they to say? They were to proclaim the words of this life. They were to proclaim that God had done this supernatural thing in Christ Jesus by raising him from the dead. They were to speak about resurrection, immortality, and life that had been brought to light by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was their theme, that Jesus was the author of life. He was the author of life. He had been demonstrated to be the author of life by his resurrection. These were the disciples who in his lifetime had said to him, Master, you only have the words of eternal life. He came that we might have life. He claimed to be the bread of life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And he's called the word of life. Why? Because when he speaks, dead people come out of their grave. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. The dead hear the voice of the Son of Man, and those who hear live. He is the word of life. You're to go into Jerusalem, you're to go to the temple, and you're to preach all the words of this life, said the angel. And so back to the place of danger, back to the place of duty, back to the place of opportunity they go, putting their lives on the line once again for Jesus' sake. And there's a sense of which this is a reminder to us of what our duty is. But this duty hasn't altered. An angel may have told them after releasing them from prison, but the Word of God tells us what we are to do in the world in which we live. We are to proclaim the Word of life. You see, under pressure from our peers, from our colleagues, from our friends and neighbors, what is our great temptation? Well, our great temptation is to be quiet because of their resistance to the gospel, the temptation we have is to say, well, you know, the only thing I can do in the office I'm in or with the friends I have or with the people I know is to let my life do the talking. It's a very ridiculous phrase, but we use it. It's like that other ridiculous phrase, be always preaching the gospel and, if necessary, use words. I mean, that doesn't, it's not even rational, that. You can only preach if you're talking. You can only share Christ if you're speaking. News is something you tell people. You tell people news. You proclaim news. If you turned on the television, for example, and you saw the newsreader with her makeup on, and her gleaming teeth, looking at the camera, smiling, and saying nothing, is she letting her life do the talking? It's ridiculous. News is for sharing. You, you have to speak, okay? You have to articulate news. You have news to share with people. The gospel is for sharing. Proclaim it. Go tell the words of this life. An exhilarating deliverance. Then, thirdly, there's an embarrassing silence in this story. 
comes the next morning. It's a great, it's a great scene. And I think Luke loves the humor in this scene. Next morning, the court assembles as if there's nothing wrong. Verse 21 says, they came together. They called together the council and all the Senate of Israel, literally the assembly of Israel. That underlines for you the authority that they were very conscious of, the highly visible legal process that was about to begin in the story. The, the formula comes from Exodus chapter 12 for Moses gathering together the full assembly of all the sons of Israel, council of elders and rulers of all the people. Now, Luke is steeped in the Old Testament. He knows this language well, and he's echoing this language deliberately. Because what he's saying to us is, here is the leadership of historic Israel facing officially now the challenge of the church. They faced the challenge of Jesus, and what have they done with him? Killed him. Now they're facing the challenge of the church. And it's then things begin to unravel. They've gathered early. They've gathered eagerly. They've gathered publicly. And there must be a sense of excitement. They have the ringleaders in prison. Everybody knows it. They did it with a, with a great deal of panache and flair and publicity. And the cameras and the lights and the action were all taking place as these men were herded into public prison. Now they had this movement by the throat. Call the prisoners to appear before us. And they're chatting among themselves, planning what's going to happen next, what they're going to do to these men, how they're going to squash this movement now like a little gnat, pressing their finger down and squeezing the life out of them. What's the delay? What is happening? How long does it take to bring a bunch of prisoners from the cells? Until someone excitedly comes in and says, uh, well, well, everything's in order. Everything's locked up as it should be. The guards are in place. I've smelt their breath. They're not drunk. They're wide awake. But that was the good news. Here's the bad news. There's nobody in the cell. Seriously. And just as this person is sharing this bit of information, suddenly someone else excitedly rushes in and says, <laughs> that was a gasp, by the way, if somebody had been running. I'm not, yeah. Anyway, I decided not to go into acting school for that reason. Uh, he's gasping in. He comes gasping in. He says, he says, uh, Guess what? Down in the temple. Well, spit it out, man. Down in the temple. Them. Say what you mean, man. Those men that you put in jail, they're back in the temple, and they're preaching Jesus. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what they felt? Can you imagine the embarrassment that they felt? There was this embarrassing moment of silence. It is an amazing thing. So we have a rerun. They send the troops in. They herd them back in again. You see, this had happened to them before. Remember, this, this kind of event had happened to them before. Not long before, not long before, they had put the body of a man in a tomb. 
they had set a guard at the tomb, and the next morning it was the tomb that was empty, and here it happened all over again. This time it was a prison that was empty. The guards were there. It was as safe as they knew how, just as the tomb had been. And they've got egg in their face. They're embarrassed by what has happened. Well, this time there's no force. They kind of hustle the apostles in before them. And here's what they accuse them of. There are two charges. First of all, they were guilty of disobedience. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You know you're guilty of contempt of court. That was their first charge. And then here's the second charge. Listen to this one. This is even, this is really amazing. They, they say that these men are guilty of laying the blame for killing the Messiah at their door. Duh. They had. So this is what they say to them. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. I mean, they had said, they had said, here were their words, they had said to Pilate, listen, let his blood be on us and our children. What do they have to complain about? They had said it themselves. Bringing the blood on someone means accusing them of someone's death. What the high priest is objecting to here is that they were now being held responsible for Jesus' death. Well, of course they were. But by accusing the leaders of murdering the Messiah, what they were doing was effectively calling down God's retribution or vengeance or wrath upon them. And perhaps in addition, they thought the apostles could provoke an uprising against them. Hence, they were afraid of the stoning, a popular stoning by the people of verse 26. Well, we move on from that embarrassing silence to the apostles now, emphasizing obedience. Peter speaks up for them all, as he often does in Acts, and he answers the first charge. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Yes, we have been disobedient, but when you came and arrested us, we came peaceably. We didn't fight you. We didn't argue with you. We knew that was your power, your right, your authority. You can arrest whoever, whomsoever you wish, and so therefore we submitted to your arresting authority. But we must obey God rather than men. In fact, that's the theme of the section. If you look at 29, verse 29, 32, you'll find it starts with the words, to obey God, and ends with the words, who obey Him. Obedience is the theme. What they're saying is we don't put personal preferences above the word and will of God. We don't let that anything to do with our own inclinations or what makes it convenient or comfortable or okay for us in any way supersede the word and will of God. And what they do here, of course, gives an example to all Christians about giving the authorities due deference and respect Paul says that, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 13 about paying your taxes. I know, but you have to pay them. Avoid, what is it Donald Gray Barnhouse said? Avoiding, tax avoidance is okay, tax evasion isn't. He said, avoid all unnecessary taxes, evade no necessary taxes. I remember that 
Because sometimes you read something and you think, oh, I wish he hadn't said that. But he was right, of course. So here's the example that's being set to us. Deference to the civil courts, submission to human authorities with proper respect, giving appropriate cooperation. But, you see what Peter is saying to these people is this. We belong to God, first of all. We are his people, first of all. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to declare his praises. And we cannot be silent. You can't put us on mute. We just cannot do it. We are here to talk. We talk. Christianity talks. It says things. It has something to say. It cannot survive on mute. It can only survive on play. Because this is what it is about. We have news for the world. And this is the first order claim that God has over his people. And whenever that first order claim is threatened by the state or thwarted by the authorities, or is contradicted by some ecclesiastical court somewhere, then a conflict emerges. A conflict between my conscience and God. Uh, in relation to God and what is being asked of me. And invariably, it's Christian people who buck the trends and break the laws, silencing their witness who pay the price by imprisonment or death. The bottom line of the story is that people of God cannot keep silent about God and the gospel. We must obey God rather than men. Peter then addresses the second charge, and he does that by reaffirming the resurrection of Jesus. We were in the jail, and now we're not. Jesus was in the grave, and now he's not. God raised Jesus from the dead every bit as much as he got us out of prison. That's his argument. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. You notice how straight he is with these people? God raised Jesus, whom you hanged. Well, they had. They had him hanged on a tree. The language comes from Deuteronomy 21. Anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse because the law required that a fragrant, flagrant lawbreaker, when executed, be hung on a tree to symbolize God's curse on him. And what the authorities had done was they made sure it was Pilate killed Jesus because then Jesus was hung on a cross, on a tree, a symbol of the penal nature of his death, but more than that, a symbol of the curse that came upon Jesus. The language that Peter uses here doesn't, ex doesn't expand it, but he does elsewhere, as does Paul. When they use this tree language uh, in 1 Peter 2 and in Galatians 3 and emphasize that, that Jesus was dying in our place, bearing the sin that we deserve, taking the curse that we deserve, as Paul puts it, he became a curse in our place. It all stems from the language that Peter uses here this early on to the authorities. You hanged him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead to vindicate him, 
But then secondly, a new idea here concerns the Spirit. We are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. The apostles say, we were there, we've been there, we were with Him throughout His life, we were there, we saw Him alive, we are witnesses of these things. It all hangs on us and on our testimony, they're saying. That's why, had these men died in prison, there would be no Christianity today. Because it's a historical religion, it needed witnesses, it needed people there to see it, to hear it. Peter's argument is, we are the witnesses, we were there, we saw this. God's confirmed it by the Holy Spirit through all of these signs and wonders the apostles were doing. But not only that, the Holy Spirit that was given to all those who obey Him. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit's not only on the apostles in this unique and miraculous way, but it's upon all of us to do what? To open our lips, to speak the matchless worth of Jesus, our Savior. Peter says, you thought that by crucifying him, you were putting him under God's curse, but in fact, God has highly exalted him. He's given him a name above every name. He's exalted Jesus to the very highest place. You know what that means? That's what Peter is saying to these leaders. You know what that means? It means you are pitting yourself against God. The argument was absolutely sound. If Jesus was dead, if Jesus is alive, God raised him, and God vindicated him. And if you're against Jesus, you're against God. The argument holds up tonight. It holds up for you and for me. It tests our hearts. It tests our understanding. What, what has God made Jesus? Do you notice this? He has made him both prince and Savior, prince, a leader, someone to follow, a ruler, a Lord, Savior, a rescuer who can bring you out from underneath the wrath of God, bring you into liberty. Well, they got the point. They got it so quickly. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them there and then. And then we have the, inter the interruption of this man, Gamaliel. While the court are baying for blood, and by the way, the phrase that's used there is going to occur again in chapter 7, and that time they're going to kill Stephen. They really were serious about wanting to kill them, tear them apart. Gamaliel, one of the outstanding teachers and Pharisees of his day, interrupted. Pharisees were experts in the law. Gamaliel was known for a, as a moderate and uh, an open-minded individual, one of the great teachers of Judaism of his day. And he counsels a moderating approach. His language and words are famous. If this is of God, then it will succeed. If it's not of God, then it will fizzle out and die. It sounds also tolerant. It sounds so moderate. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so postmodern. The kind of thing people would say today. And there's some truth in it, isn't it? If the movement of God is of God, then it cannot be destroyed. Actually, Gamaliel this day speaks more than he knew. Because his phrase here is going to be absolutely 
important to understand what's going on in the rest of the book of Acts because what's going to happen? Every attempt to silence and eliminate the movement is going to be thwarted. The church will continue. The church will exist. It will go on. It's one of the facts of history. It's one of the amazing facts of history that in spite of having all the weight of the Roman Empire against it, the church has continued. In spite of having all the weight of Hitler's Germany against it, the church has continued. In spite of having all the weight of communism, Stalinist communism, or Russian Maoist communism against it, the church has continued. It is an amazing thing today that there is a church of Jesus Christ in the world. It's part of God's argument for the reality of what is done in Christ Jesus, that the church exists. The church does not have to be successful. It just has to exist in the world to demonstrate its reality, the reality of God's presence. But there's something also basically flawed in Gamaliel's approach. This kind of live-and-let-live approach is fundamentally fatalistic. He makes absolutely no attempt to understand what the Christians are saying. He doesn't counsel on investigation into their claims. There's no attempt to understand the theology or the message of the apostles. He doesn't question the truthfulness or otherwise of Christianity's claims. And more than that, he even raises in the way he speaks the question of probability. How probable is it that the apostles' claims are true? The tone in which he speaks give a higher degree of probability to the possibility that they are right than anyone else outside of the church has up to this point. In fact, his statement makes us look at the movement's growth and message and outcome. But at the end, Gamaliel doesn't follow through. He says it, but he doesn't feel it. He sees no need to investigate it. He feels no need within himself for what the Christian message is about. Waiting to see how something will turn out is a lazy way of doing any kind of intellectual business. And even if there was only a slight possibility, and he says more than that, Even if there's only a slight possibility that a movement might be right, you owe it to yourself, but you also owe it to the people you represent to investigate, to examine, to compare, to see whether it is true. Maybe this is where you are tonight. Maybe the challenge to you this evening is to investigate, to examine to see whether the claim of Christ is true for yourself. I'm unashamed or unembarrassed to say to you, I have no problem with you saying, well, I want to look further into this. You don't convince me. That's fine. You can say that to me. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm cool with that. If you go away and investigate it for yourself, I think you will find, and this is what I think some of you are afraid of, I think you will find yourself moving towards the probability that it might be right. 
And that the more you move to the probability that it might be right, it then begins to threaten relationships you have, ideas that you currently hold very dear, and it threatens your credibility in the eyes of others. Very often it is just because of what it will threaten, you stop way back here before you start the process of finding out for yourself. I want to put a challenge to you this evening. Find out for yourself. Investigate it. Read the New Testament. Start with the book of Luke and read right through Acts. Luke Acts, one book by one author. Read it for yourself. I put it to you this evening. Well, how do the apostles respond? Well, they're beaten up by the authorities. They consider it an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. His name transformed their pain into joy. After all, the Master had said to them many times, Rejoice in being mistreated because of the Son of Man, and that those who lose their lives for His sake would find them in glory. What do we learn as we close this evening? One is that the church is going to survive because God is behind it. God is behind it. We have the Bible, and at the back of the Bible, we have the end of the story, and the end of the story is the church wins. I advise you to read the end of the story. The church will survive because God is behind it. Not because we're influential, not because we're great people, but because God is behind it. And God picks a mixed bunch such as we are. It's part of the evidence of it. Just look at us. Look at us. Don't look at some of us too long. Strain your incredulity. But, but look at us, and you see that God has chosen all kinds of people, thrown them into this bundle of life he calls the church. And the amazing thing is what binds us together is our common allegiance to and our common love for this Lord Jesus Christ, the author of life. The church will win because God is behind it. During the Reformation, there was a man called Andrew Melville in Scotland who dared to stand up and scorn the Earl of Morton's threat to either hang or banish reformed Scottish Reformed ministers. Here's what he said to the Earl. Tush, sir. I don't know what tush means. Tush, sir. Threaten your courtiers after that manner. It is the same to me whether I rot in the air or in the ground. The earth is the Lord's. Let God be glorified. It is not in your will to hang or to exile the truth. It is not in your will to hang or exile his truth. It is the same to me whether I rot in the air or in the ground. Why? We obey God rather than men. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us a sure word of truth. We pray that you would write that word in our heart. Give us courage in the midst of all the peer pressure to keep our hand up, as it were, claiming allegiance to what is true, whatever everybody else seems to be doing around us, to keep our hands up saying, yes, this is the truth. And to be committed to that, whatever happens, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.